you know, you give the tech guys some new toys, and what are you going to do, right? Hey, welcome to our new home, friends. That is... So this is not a surprise, but I did not sleep at all last night. I was so excited uh, to get this room full of all of you because, of course, the building is not the point, right? The community is the point. And as I've been dreaming about what is going to happen this fall and moving forward, I just am so thankful um, for all of you who've helped to make this place what it is. And I can only imagine the lives that are going to be touched in our community uh, because of this space. Um, also, apparently, we're going to have to go to two services pretty soon. You know what I'm saying? So that's, that's good. It's good. No worries. Uh, we're still planning to just one through Labor Day. Um, also, this gives us sort of a soft launch. Um, you know, we're going to have our grand opening uh, on September. Wait, I wrote it down. September 3rd. Oh, no, that's not right. 16th will be our grand opening. This is sort of our soft grand opening. This is like when you and your buddy decide to open a Mexican restaurant, but you're not sure if your burritos are any good. You know what I'm saying? So you're like, we should probably have like our moms come and like our aunts and things. So that's like you guys, okay? Uh, and then we'll have a big, uh, well, it's big celebration grand opening on uh, September uh, 16th. And then the Thursday before that, we want to have a celebration and dedication. So we'll have some um, light hors d'oeuvres, we're going to have a few songs in this room, and then we're going to actually spend some time and pray over this new space. Um, and so some of you have been wondering when we are doing that. Um, it was a little chaotic, moving from tent to building and everything, and with staff vacations happening at the same time, we decided we would just push it right before the grand opening. So you can mark your calendars, and then starting next week, you'll be able to RSVP. But it's been busy, and we have no way to RSVP right now, so don't try yet. Okay. Uh, so for today, uh, we're going to talk about this series that we're in called Creating Your Future. And if you've been with us, you know that the series Creating Your Future sort of revolves around a really great question. And we'll put it up on the screens. It goes like this. Uh, what do you want? What do you want? And as we've said all along, it's a tricky question uh, because all of us have something that we want right now. And all of us could tell the story of a time where we got something we wanted and then later realized we didn't really want it. Uh, getting what we wanted sent our lives in an unenviable direction, and if we could, we would go back and not get what we wanted. And this can be true academically, it can be true vocationally, it can be true financially, it can be true relationally. So it really is a tricky question, and we said the reason for this reality is this internal conflict between what we naturally want in a moment and what we ultimately want in our lives. And so last week, um, I gave you an exercise the, that sort of fell out of this. Hopefully some of you did it. It's homework and it's summer, so I appreciate the fact that some of you were like, not doing it, but that's okay. You can do it later. Uh, and it goes like this. What do you want people to say about you at your funeral? And, and not to be morbid, but what do you want people to say about you at your funeral. And this question has the ability to burn through the fog and help us move past what we naturally want in life and think about what we ultimately want. And, and it's something most people never consider. And consequently, it's pretty normal to leave a season of your life and move into a new season and miss an opportunity to create your preferred future. Here's an example um, from my own life to show you what I mean. Uh, fathers with young kids have a desire that their children would ultimately respect them. This is a picture of my four boys. I know they look cute. Do not let them fool you, okay? <laughs> they can be downright evil at times. But anyway, uh, they take after their mom. Just kidding. Oh, 
I can't even make that joke anymore because she's in this service. That's not okay. I love you, honey. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Well, my kids are young now, but when they're 20 and 30 and 40, I want them to respect me. I want them to want to be with me when they don't have to be with me, right? And here's the thing. No thing and no fling is worth losing the respect of my children. So when opportunities surface, something that I want in the moment, I sort of weigh it through. There's something I want that's bigger and better. And so there's nothing that I would trade for my children's respect. And I'm not the only one who feels that way. Here's why this is such a big deal, right? If you lose the respect of your kids, you may never give it back. And if you never get it back, you may never get what you ultimately want. Now, we don't tend to think of it in these terms uh, because we think about what's right in front of us and what's being advertised. Maybe I'm the only one, right? You look at what everyone else is doing, what everyone else is driving, uh, and, and, and social media, of course, has made this that much more uh, front and center. But I'm telling you, when you start to think ultimately, you really will begin to live differently. You'll be less prone to settle for what you merely want in a moment. And that's, that's what I want for you. That's what I want for me. And I think that's what God wants for you as well. In fact, last week, uh, we landed with a question that I want to sort of pick up and run with today. And it went like this. What does God want for you? What does God want for you? And the answer surprised many of us because we grew up thinking that God wants to keep us from having fun. Where are my youth group people at, right? Yeah, really what God wants is he doesn't want me to do things that are really fun. But, but that, in fact, is, is, not, is not the case. You know, growing up, we maybe thought if I had said yes to what God wants for me, my life will be miserable. But, but as we discovered last week, God ultimately wants the best for you. In fact, Jesus, out of all the ways he teaches us to think about God, he says, you know, approach God as your heavenly father. Healthy parents don't want anything from their kids. They want the best for their kids. And so Jesus points us to that reality and said, that is what God is like. In fact, in the New Testament, there is a letter written by a pastor named Paul to some Christians, and he wants them to see what God wants to do in their lives. See, well, what does God want for you? He's like, well, he gives them a description of sort of a God-led life. And he uses some interesting language for it, but it's in a letter written to some Christians living in a Roman province called Galatia. He says this, the fruit of the Spirit, as in the fruit of God's Spirit moving in your life, looks like this, love Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I don't know about you, but I read that list and I'm like, yep, that's exactly what I want. It's what I want for me. It's what I want for you. It's what I want for the world. And the good news is that's the sort of life you and I were created for. That's what God wants for you. That's what you want for you. And your heavenly father wants to partner with you in bringing more of that fruit into your life. He wants to partner with you to build your preferred future. The life you ultimately want can't be packaged or marketed or sold. There's no app for it. No one claps for it. There's no rap for it. I was really excited about that line. Yes, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's not a switch that you flip in a moment. It's more like a seed that you plant and along with God's help cultivate. And then the fruit of that seed as it grows is the fruit of the spirit of God in your life. And it's what you really want. It's, it's character. Now, more than a few of you have sent me an email saying you've really been enjoying this series because you've begun to think in terms you really never have thought of before. 
Or maybe better, you used to think about it, but then life got busy and you got distracted. And people just don't talk about this stuff. We talk about upgrades and vacations and experiences. And that's what surrounds us. So it literally would be possible to spend your whole life just chasing after the next thing and never get what you really want. And so that's why it's so important for us to spend some time really wrestling with what we want for us and what God wants for us. And so as we continue the series today, I want to explore a very famous passage of the Bible. Um, in this section of an ancient letter, uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, a pastor named Paul, gives us something very practical to do. He gives us something we can begin to embrace that will sort of set us on a path of aligning our lives with what God really wants for us. And as many of you know, Paul did not walk onto the pages of history as a pastor. He actually walked onto the pages of history as a Christian hunter and Christian hater. He was a Pharisee, a professional Jewish religious person, and he believed Christianity was a cancer within Judaism that needed to be eradicated. And so he spent years tracking down Christians, arresting Christians, and imprisoning Christians until the day that he came face to face with the resurrected Jesus. And then for Paul, everything changed because the early church was founded on a historical, literal resurrection which Paul thought was a scam, but that view was hard to hold when you actually come face to face with Jesus. And so Paul spends the rest of his life telling everyone he could about Jesus. He had personally experienced the difference Jesus can make in a life. So he traveled around the Mediterranean Rim, he planted churches, and he wrote letters. Now one of the places Paul didn't go to plant a church was the city of Rome. But he did write them a letter that made its way into the New Testament of your Bible. It's called Romans. It was written around 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And the section I want to explore is found right in the middle of the letter. And you should know in the previous chapters, Paul has been celebrating the grace and mercy God has shown to people through Jesus. He basically says to them, listen, God knows you. He knows what you've done. He knows what you've thought. He knows the regrets you carry. He was watching when you were doing whatever it was that you now regret. Comforting thought there. We'll spin back on that one, right? Nevertheless, he reminds his readers that God is for them. God sent his son to rescue them and to restore them to right relationship with him. Not because they were good or they were worthy. Because he is good and he is for us. So Paul basically says, since that all that's true, here's something very practical we should do. And it's a counterintuitive encouragement that really will help us create our preferred future. Here's what Paul writes. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, and just pause there a second, in view of God's mercy, in other words, he has done all of this for you, so now there's something you should do for him, but in the end, the thing you do for him is really for you too. Here's what he says, and what comes next is actually a showstopper for some people, because some of us grew up in church where we were taught something a bit different. We were taught that we had an obligation to God, but it went something more like this. You know, in view of hell, here's what you should do, right? Or in view of God's wrath, here's what you should do. Or because God will get you if you don't, here's what you should do. And a few of you were like, whoa, flashbacks to basement Sunday school. All right, yeah. <laughs> Woo, yeah, and old church smell. Love that. Okay. But that's not what Paul says, right? Paul, who wrote half of the New Testament, says, in view of God's mercy, I urge you to offer your bodies as living 
sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Now, we have a cultural rift around the concept of a sacrifice that I need to close for us because most of us have no idea what sacrifice meant in the ancient world. Nothing graphic comes to mind for us, but it did for them. See, people in Rome would have been very familiar with the concept of a sacrifice. Ancient religion, including ancient Jewish religion, was very bloody. And so when they absorbed Paul's words, they had a vivid picture in their mind. In ancient religion, countless animals were sacrificed to the worship of the gods. I brought a picture with me of King Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. Later, Herod rebuilt the temple. But you can see here, there's a fire on an altar and the smoke is rising because blood is being spilled. Meat is being grilled. By the way, if you ever wonder what it smelled like in the temple in Jerusalem, it would have been barbecue. You heard it here. There you go. That was just for free. Yeah. And so there was this constant flow of blood and constant smoke rising to try to make amends for the wrongs that people had done. That's what a sacrifice meant to those first Roman Christians. But but Paul says, you know, you need to be like a living sacrifice. You still climb up on the altar like a sacrifice, but, but this time there's not any blood you don't need the blood because Jesus' blood is the only blood anyone will ever need. It was the, he was the once and final blood sacrifice for sin. But Paul says, I want you to get up on the altar and give God your life. If, essentially, I want you to die to your will and offer your body as a living sacrifice. He's talking about our behavior. He wants us to surrender our behavior to God. And of course, um, if you're paying attention, you have a little objection because it's like, Wait a minute, wait a minute, Paul. That seems like a blank check. I mean, are you really saying that I'm supposed to say, God, the answer is yes, what's the question? And I think Paul would say, absolutely. That's exactly what I'm saying. Well, why would I ever do something like that? Who would surrender their life to God without asking questions first? And as he continues, it's as if Paul has already anticipated our objection. Check out what he says. He says, like, as irrational as that sounds, it's actually the most rational thing you could do. Here's how he put it. He said, this, this surrendering your will to God's will for your life, is your true and proper worship. And a couple of things interesting I found in the original language, which is Greek, uh, the word true can also be translated logical. In other words, this is your logical and proper worship. And the term worship can also be translated service. Your service to God is logical based on this reality. In fact, if God loves you, surrendering isn't unreasonable. Refusing to surrender is unreasonable. And as Paul continues, he gets really practical. He says this, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. And this is, this is really visual. It's almost like we've all seen things that are pressed into molds, right? If you have kids in your house, you've seen Play-Doh. Maybe at Christmas time, you've got Christmas cookies, sort of things that are pressed into a particular shape. In that same way, Paul's like, there is a pattern to this world. The culture in which we live has themes or currents. There's a way things are done and everybody does it that way. And Paul writes, don't be pressed into the mold of this world. In other words, don't be endlessly distracted by upgrades and experiences. There's so much more to life. It's bigger and it's better and it's richer if you step into the way God designed you to live. It's so much better than what comes naturally. So he says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Literally be metamorphosized like a caterpillar into a butterfly. God wants to transform your 
life. It's like he says, listen, there's a process. If you engage it, it'll transform you. Since middle school, you've been in a process that has sort of shaped you into the mold of our culture. And he says, this is not the best for you. It focuses you on what you want and not what you value. It focuses you on what you want now and not what you want ultimately. You've been pressed into this mold and God wants to reform you and transform you to be more like Jesus. But you're like, okay, well, how does that work? And he continues. He says, don't conform longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this is significant. Because Paul knows that we can't simply go out and change our behavior. Nobody's that good. We've tried and we've failed. I present as evidence New Year's resolutions. Who's with me? Right? You're like, dude, I'm gonna t- I used to and no, I'm not going to do it anymore. And, and Paul was like, yeah, that, that's not going to work. Paul doesn't even focus on our behavior. He focuses on how we think. Because he knows when we see as God sees... And when we understand the world as God understands the world, when we see as God sees, we understand the world as God does, when we see marriage as God sees marriage, when we see money as God sees money, when we see opportunity as God sees opportunity, when we see our families, our profession, our talents, our gifts, and our time, the way God sees those things, then we will be more inclined to do what God wants us to do. Uh, Just sort of in summary, we'll put it up on the screen. We renew our minds, we see as God sees, and then we begin to live differently. By the way, this is why church is so frustrating for so many of us. Maybe you grew up in a church that endlessly told you what to do, and you were like me, and you were always raising your hand in the back and saying, why? And typically you got a response, you don't ask questions, you just need to do. I think Paul would say, no, ask questions. Because if you understand why, you'll be more inclined to do. That's why transformation always begins with the renewing of the mind and not just changing behavior. In fact, the New Testament imperatives, all those to-dos and to-don'ts, apart from New Testament thinking, apart from this reality, result in short-term obedience and long-term frustration. And that is a great place for a Christian. Moo, let me hear you. Right? Try that again. That's why transformation always begins with the renewing of the mind, not just changing behavior. The New Testament imperatives, apart from New Testament thinking, result in short-term obedience and long-term frustration. And we all have friends who have bailed from church because it just didn't work. And they became so frustrated because they would try to change their behavior without really understanding why. As many of you know, I was a youth pastor for 15 years, and I did my share of summer camps. Any summer camp people in the house, right? And summer camps are amazing, and we still do them, and I love them. But one of the things I noticed, I mean, I saw this reality play out uh, in one student in particular who was a part of the ministry I led, which does not mean I was a great youth pastor. I'm just saying, just to be honest there, right? But I noticed that every year at the end of camp, he would get up and sort of promise to change in the same way. And it would be the same promise year after year after year. And the first time it happened, like as in version 2.0 of the same promise, I remember thinking, I think he said that last year. And then the third time it happened, my wife leaned over and went, dude, he is not doing something right. Because every year, it's like the same thing comes up. And I think that's exactly what Paul is talking about. 
And that's why so many of our friends will drop out of Christianity and drop out of church. They just get frustrated because they would go to church and they wouldn't tell them why, but say, you need to do this differently. You need to do this differently. And they reached a point where they said, dude, I go to church every time and I feel bad about myself. And if I wanted to feel bad about myself, I could just golf (laughs) or bowl or do anything athletic. Maybe that's just me, some group therapy, right? Yeah. So why would I, and Paul says, yeah, that's, that's right. You're not transformed by the commitment of your will. You're transformed by the renewing of your mind. You must come to a place where you trust God with your life and not just your afterlife. Because if you think about it, it's pretty easy to trust God with what comes next because that's kind of our only option. <laughs> but when it comes to this life here and now, every time we say yes to God, then we're going to say no to something we want to do. And we're in effect saying, God, I trust you more than I trust my natural impulses. And he would say, it's because I love you and it's because I have your best interest in mind. It starts for us by asking the right questions. What do I want ultimately? And not being driven by the wrong questions. What do I want immediately? See, ultimately is about character and immediately is about what we can buy and trade and upgrade. But as you, if you see as God sees, you'll start to do as God directs you to do. And Paul continues, he tells us in the last verse here, um, the result of renewing our minds. He says this, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good and pleasing and perfect will. And test and approve comes from a little Greek word meaning to critically examine. In other words, renewing your mind will make it easier for you to discern what God's will is. And his will is good for you. It's what you ultimately want. It's pleasing, which means it's satisfying and acceptable and fulfilling. It's perfect, which means it's grown up and mature. God's will for you is God's desire for you. God has a desire for you and you can discover what it is. And in the process, you can discover what you ultimately want and what God ultimately wants for you, and in fact, that they are one in the same. And at that moment, at that moment, you may even have the courage to raise the white flag and surrender. Say, God, if you're for me and you sent Jesus to die for me, and so I know you're for me, then I guess I can trust you with this situation. Everything in me wants to do this, but I know it's outside of your design. And if I can project past what I feel right now, I guess I could even understand why, that that's not going to bring me to the place I really want to be. So I raise the right flag. I I surrender to you. And so, my friends, i got to ask you a question. What what do you want? What do you want in life? My bet is it's more than endless upgrades and experiences. But the good news is when you discover what's most important, when you project forward, you'll come face to face with the will of your heavenly father. His good and pleasing and perfect will for you. We're going to wrap the service today by taking communion together. And it's the first time in the room. So we thought this would be an incredible time to celebrate. Uh, And so just a couple of, of housekeeping details um, you don't have to be a member at Keystone to take communion with us. We don't have members, so it'd be awkward. Bunch of people holding bread, cup, nobody coming. Okay, so that's good. Um, all we ask is that you have said yes to Jesus and that you believe his death on the cross covers your sins. And if that's you, you're welcome to come. Other stations at the front um, and at the back. Um, and just to kind of, by way of setting it up, on the night Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends, he had a final meal with his first disciples. 
And during this meal, he took common elements and infused them with uncommon value. He took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this, this bread represents my body, which will soon be broken for you. And so when you eat of it, I want you to remember me. I want, I want you to remember how much you are loved. And that your heavenly father has made a way where there was no way before. And so whatever you bring to him, he will forgive you. You have not gone too far. You have not done too much. You are not beyond the grip of his grace. And then he took a cup of wine and he lifted it up and he said, this cup represents a new covenant, a new arrangement, a new testament in my blood that's poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Just like all those animals sacrificed on the altar in Jerusalem were about the forgiveness of sins, I am like the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when my blood spills, everything changes. And so when you come to the cup, remember. Remember that you were rescued. Remember how much that you're loved. Remember that you were bought with a price. And remember that in response to that gift, God is inviting you to trust him, not just with the life to come, but with your life right here and right now. It's a love that breaks down all of the walls that separate us from our creator. So I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, in a moment the band will play, and you'll be able to come and take communion. And just maybe, maybe just take a moment as you grip the bread and dip it into the cup and say, God, thank you. God, thank you, and thank you for having a plan for my life right here and right now. Give me the courage to surrender to you. And in doing so, may I find that life that at my core I know I need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for a new place to call home. We thank you for a new base of operations. We thank you most of all for Jesus. We thank you that his life was a radical invasion of light and truth into our world. Thank you that he invites the most broken of us to follow. Thank you for the grace when we fail. Thank you for second chances. And I pray that for a whole bunch of us, even this moment would be a new beginning where we raise the white flag and we say, okay, God, I made a mess of things. I surrender my will to your will. May your will be done in my life. And may I taste and see how good you really are. In the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Everyone said.